Ben Cuthbert, and I'm one of the associate pastors here at South, our senior pastor. Uh, Don Denius is traveling to see one of his daughters, who is one of our missionaries. Uh, she works with Operation Mobilization, their arts division in Georgia, so Pastor Don and Nancy are traveling. Um, also, as most of you know, know uh, today will be the last time that I have the privilege of preaching on a Sunday morning here at South Church. Um, Rachel and the boys and I will be transitioning to Hillsdale, Michigan, where I've been called as the next pastor of College Baptist Church there. And I want you to know that it's a privilege uh, to preach here this morning. And preaching is really, it's a, it's a sacred responsibility and a privilege. And so I'm especially grateful at a church of our size to have been given as many opportunities as I have been by Pastors Don and Doug and by the congregation to open God's Word and to preach to you, uh, to teach in different settings over these last eight years. Uh, you have been kind to help me grow in the gifts and talents that I think God has given me to preach and to teach and to, to shepherd, to pastor God's people. And so I want to say thank you. And I also want to say that we're overwhelmed by your support for us in this next step of faith. Um, your notes and your emails and your text messages and your calls, they all mean a lot to us. So we wanted to say that we appreciate that and ask you to keep them coming. <laughs> because um, as excited as we are and as confident as we are, we're still... We're sad. <laughs> We're sad. Um, because we'll miss you. Kind of, okay, come visit. <laughs> it's only an hour and five minutes away, so come visit. Um, you know, we will miss you. And we thank God for you because you've loved us well. You welcomed us here. You've helped us raise our kids to know and love Jesus. You've given generously, and that provides for us as a family. So we want to say thank you. We want to say thank God for the ways that he's at work in you and among you. And I guess our prayer, not I guess, I know our prayer for you would be like the prayer that Paul prays for the Philippians when he says, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So we'll pray that for you. And we pray that you'll pray that for us and that you'll keep praying for us because as we live in this time of transition over the next month or so, uh, the transition's going to be difficult. I mean, transitions are just difficult. They're uncomfortable, and they leave me and Rachel feeling like, is this real? <laughs> is this for real, or is this just a dream? Because we're living between two places, and it feels very surreal and, and not real. We, we can't see Hillsdale day by day. We know it's there. We know College Baptist is a congregation that 
needs a pastor, and we believe that we're called there. We know it's real, and yet it feels kind of surreal because we can't physically see it day by day, like I see you sitting in this room. And I got to thinking, this surreal feeling of transition that we're experiencing is really like the whole of the Christian life. The Christian life can feel very surreal because as Christians, we live by faith in light of realities that we can't see with our eyes, right? We live by faith in realities that we can't see with our eyes. In fact, I would argue that the most important reality in all of human history is something that we cannot see with our eyes right now. And the reality that I'm talking about is the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the most important reality in all of human history. And so this morning we're going to be thinking about resurrection realities and we are going to look at the Apostle Paul's words to the Colossians in Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4, to do that. So we'll be thinking about the reality of the resurrection and other resurrection realities as we read Paul's words to the Colossians in Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. So if you'll turn there, and please listen carefully uh, to God's living an active word. I pray that it will be powerful for you today. Colossians 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, we would see in our minds the glory of your resurrected Son, Jesus. Do this by the power of your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this really short, but especially powerful passage, I think we see three resurrection realities, and then two resurrection imperatives, commands that flow out of those three realities. So let's dive right in and take a look at those resurrection realities first. Number one, Paul reminds us first and foremost that Christ is raised and seated. That's the first resurrection reality. We see this in verse one, that Christ has been raised and is, quote, seated at the right hand of God. As I said already, this is reality. Christ is raised. It's not just that he was raised on an Easter morning a long time ago. He is raised. He is the resurrected Savior and Lord. That is reality. 
But I think this can be really hard for us to understand, can it? Because we weren't there. We didn't see it with our own eyes. But that doesn't mean it's not true, that it's not real. The reality of Jesus' resurrection is a fact of history. And even, you know, non-Christian historians have testified to the historicity of the resurrection. The Jewish historian Josephus famously wrote in the 90s A.D., that's not the 1990s, that's the 90s, like first century, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct to this day. So even in the first century, Josephus says, he appeared to them alive again on the third day. Christ is raised. He's alive. But Paul here says, not only is Christ raised, he is also seated. Seated in heaven Right now, it's important for us to recognize Jesus' place and his position as Paul describes it here in verse 3. It says that he's seated above, which is just another way in Bible speak of saying in heaven, the place where God dwells, the place where God rules and reigns. That is where Jesus is. That is his place. He's residing there right now. At 10.16, on this day, he is in his resurrected body, seated above. And this word seated tells us something about not only his place, but his position. The place is above, but his position is one of sitting. Now we need to understand what the Bible means by the fact that Jesus is seated. Think about it this way. There are many, or multiple, I should say, not many, but multiple living U.S. presidents today, right? You've got the Bushes, President Clinton, Carter. We can think of those presidents, but there's only one sitting president, the current president who's in authority. So to be seated is actually to say he's in authority. And not only is Jesus Seated, not passively in a lazy boy, but seated in a throne of authority, it says he's seated in a position at the right hand, at the right hand of God. You know, even in our culture, we have this little phrase that someone who's most honored or most favored in our life, we call him or her our right hand man, our right hand woman, right? You could say that Jesus, The resurrected king is seated in ruling honor at the right hand of the Father. In Hebrews chapter 8, it says he's seated at the right hand of the majesty. So picture that in your mind, that is. You haven't seen it. 
Jesus. He is raised and he is seated. And I think that that is great news. Because as I look out on our world, as I scroll through my different news apps before I go to bed every night, the world seems out of control. I get discouraged easily at the state of our country and at the atrocities that are committed around the globe. But it's good for us to remember this reality that Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. He is raised and seated. But the resurrection realities don't stop with Jesus in Colossians chapter 3. They continue to us. In verses 1 and 3, we see that Christians are raised and hidden. That's the second resurrection reality. Christians are raised and hidden. Paul says to the Colossians in verse 1, you have been raised with Christ. And in verse 3, he says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now obviously here, Paul is speaking about the Colossians' spiritual reality. He can't be talking about their physical reality because he's writing to someone, some group of people that is, who live in a town called Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. They're there, physically, in their bodies. But he describes them, in reality, as raised and hidden. Let's think about this for a second. How is it that the Colossian Christians, or any authentic Christians, can say they are raised with Christ? Well, it's speaking of our spiritual life. That when Jesus died on the cross, we died with him. That when Jesus was risen from the grave, we rose with him. That is spiritual reality for authentic Christians. It reminds me of what Paul says to the Galatians. In Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christians are raised. But before we go any further, I want to point something out very important. Notice, if you're reading from the NIV, like I read from this morning, that verse 1 starts with the word since. If you've got other English translations in front of you, most of them prefer the translation if, which is probably the more literal and more accurate translation. So verse 1 should really read this way, if then you have been raised with Christ. It's an if. And this if is really important for us to acknowledge because it reminds us that not everyone has been raised with Christ. Not everyone has been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's a big if. It's only true if someone has turned from his sins and trusted in Jesus. Only if someone has repented of her sins and believed in Jesus. So this if is a reminder that there's lots of evangelistic work to be done, friends. You have friends and neighbors and coworkers 
who don't yet know Christ and therefore are not yet raised from their sinful state. And so you need to be praying for them. And you need to be sharing the gospel with them. And you need to be inviting them to church or to a Bible study. Or just have them in their home and get to know them so that you might have the opportunity to tell them about Jesus. Take advantage of our course, Christianity Explored. It's a great way for you to come along with someone and read the Gospel of Mark. We offer it typically three times a year. But there are people who still need to be evangelized. And you are the ones that God is going to use to reach them. There's another thing that this if reminds us of. It reminds me that it's possible. It's possible that you might be sitting here this morning and not yet be raised with Christ. You might not yet have received forgiveness of your sins. That's just reality. And so I would hate for this day to pass without you coming to terms with who Jesus is and what it really means to follow Him. So I'd urge you, you know, after the service, you can talk to a prayer partner. You can call a pastor this week. You can talk to the person who brought you because you might be coming to church for a long time. You might be familiar with Christianity. You might even profess to be a Christian. But if you haven't yet turned from sins and trusted Jesus, you're not yet raised. So let's remember that when we read a passage like this. That it's only since you've been raised if you first turn from sin and trust in Jesus. But the beauty is that those who have turned from sin and trusted Jesus, they really are raised. That spiritual reality is you're seated with Christ. Paul says here that Christians are not only raised, but they're hidden there in verse 3. Now, this word hidden is kind of strange, but I think it means at least two things. First of all, to be hidden is to be secure. Do you have any valuables? Maybe family heirlooms, maybe some extra cash. What do you do with those things that are valuable to you? You hide them, right? You might hide them under lock and key in a safe. You might stuff them in a mattress, though I wouldn't recommend it. You might buy a, or rent a safety deposit box at the bank because you want to keep them hid out of plain sight so that they can be secure, right? Paul is saying that Christians, authentic Christians, are hidden with Christ in God, that they're secure. He's talking about the eternal security that comes in knowing Jesus and knowing that your sins are forgiven and that he has your good in mind both now and eternally. We're secure. Last week here in Balance Services, I think you sang the song, Before the Throne of God Above. It captures this very beautifully in one of the verses. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. This is eternal security, that we're hidden in, or with Christ in God, that he has a grip on us, that he preserves us as we persevere in Christ. 
But this idea of hidden doesn't just mean that it's secure. It also means something else. It means that to be hidden is to be veiled, to be covered up, uh, to have a hidden identity. Think about it this way. If I line up 10 people on the street, men and women, boys and girls, rich, poor, young, old, doesn't matter, just 10 people, and you took a good look at them, there'd be no way for you to tell who was a Christian and who wasn't. Not by physical experience. Physical appearance can't show you that. Our identity, as far as the world is concerned, is, is hidden. You can't tell one from another. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be vocal about our faith in Jesus. Jesus says that we should proclaim him and make him known. But I'm talking about our physical appearance. It can't show what we are. And I think sometimes, since we live in this hard, fallen world like everybody else, we start to question, am I really raised? Am I really raised with Christ? It doesn't feel like it. Life is difficult. We just sang a, sang a song. When trials come, trials hit Christians just like non-Christians. It feels like sometimes worse. You've felt them. But the Bible scholar Doug Moo says it this way, at the present time, our heavenly identity is real, but it's hidden. We've certainly not been physically transported to heaven, nor do we belong to the heavenly realm, nor do we look any different from those around us who still belong to this world. Our true status is veiled, like it's covered up. But the good news is, our status will not always be veiled. It will not always be hidden. Because the third resurrection reality that I want you to see today here in Colossians 3 is that Christians will appear with Christ in glory. That Christians will appear with Christ in glory. It says in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So now, do you see it? Do you see the contrast between the words hidden and appear? I didn't see it until I had some prayerful study in this passage. But Paul is saying what feels hidden now will one day be seen. What is veiled now will one day be revealed. Like when you pull back a curtain at a theater and you see everything behind it. One day... Our real identity is going to be seen by everybody everywhere. And that's going to happen when Christ appears. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascended to heaven. Also in Acts chapter 1, we hear these words of the angels. This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, Jesus will appear. He's going to appear. We don't know exactly when, but he is going to appear and he will be seen. And the beautiful good news is that you will appear with him. And why shouldn't this be? Think about it. Everything that we have is with Christ. We have died with him. We've been Raised with him, spiritually speaking. We are hidden with him. According to Ephesians 2, we are 
seated with him in the heavenlies, again, spiritually speaking, and one day, Paul says, we will appear with him. Christians will appear with Christ in glory. And that means that unimaginable glory and fame and honor and goodness and victory is headed your way with Jesus for all eternity. That's good news, isn't it? That is good news. You'll share in his glory like the loyal subjects of a kingdom or like members of his team. Don't you love it when your team wins? You glory with your team, you fly your flag, you wear your t-shirt, you even say, we won! You weren't on the field, but you say, we won! Like you participated in it, right? Because you're part of his team. You'll glory with Jesus as your captain and your king. And not only will you glory in that victory, you will experience his glory with new resurrection bodies. Paul talks to the Corinthians about our resurrection bodies in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Resurrection bodies. That's part of what it, we have to look forward to in appearing with Christ in glory. You know, in my time at South, I've attended and officiated at a, at a large number of funerals. It's fairly normal at a church of our size. And some of these funerals were for, for folks who lived long, great, full lives. And others were for those who died way too young, in my estimation. But these funerals are a sad and sobering reminder that death is real, that the wages of sin is death, and that we live in a fallen world. But a passage like this gives us hope. It gives us something to rejoice in, even in our sorrow, because we look forward to resurrected bodies, to a glorious eternity with Jesus, who already has his resurrected body. And so we wait. In light of these resurrection realities, we wait for what Paul called in Titus 2.12, our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You waiting for that day? This is reality, that Jesus Christ is raised and seated. This is reality, that Christians are raised and hidden. This is reality, that Christians will appear with Christ in glory and so we wait. We don't wait passively. This is where the commands come in. This is where Paul tells us what to do in the meantime. And the commands are twofold. See them in verses 1 and 2. Set your hearts on things above. And set your minds 
on things of life. That's what we're supposed to do as we wait for that blessed hope. Set our hearts and set our minds. Let's think about that for a few minutes. In verse 1, Paul says, set your hearts on things above. Now, to set your heart is to seek something, to aim for something, to set your sights on something. Think about an athlete, an athlete who sets her sights on the finish line, an athlete who, who sets his, his sight on the target or the goal. Really, when an athlete does that, it's an act of the will, isn't it? I will finish this race. I will experience victory. And they give all of their time and their energy and their effort, their blood and their sweat and their tears to go for it with their will. They have their, their heart set on it, right? Paul says, Christians, set your heart, set your will on things above. And why should we do that? Because that's where Christ is seated. Jesus is seated there, and we want our sights set on him. We want our heart and our will consumed with knowing him and making him known. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's why we read Matthew 6 this morning. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's where your hearts need to be set. That's where your sights need to be set. That's what you need to be willing yourself to do, to seek Christ and his kingdom. How can you know if you're really achieving that, if you're really uh, making progress toward that end? Well, one simple way to do that is ask how you spend your resources. God has given us all resources. Most simply, he's given us time and talent and money. What do you do with your time and your money and your talent? That'll tell you what you're aiming for, right? So ask yourself these questions. Are you in the habit of using your time to serve God and serve others? Are you generous in giving financially to kingdom causes like the local church or global missions? Or, or local charitable organizations? Do you use your God-given talents? You all have them. Do you use your God-given talents to bless others, to love your enemies, to reach out to the poor? If you're doing those sort of things, then you have an idea, yeah, I'm aiming for things above, things that will help me know Jesus and make him known to others. But let's aim for that. Let's set our will and our hearts on those things above. And not only our will, in verse 2, Paul's second command is set your minds. Set your minds on things above, not on the things on earth. Now you might think, is Paul speaking negatively of this earth? And I don't want you to misunderstand this. This earth has value. God created it. He said it is good. So we, as Christians, are called to care for all of creation, to be good stewards of the earth, and especially to care for human life, including the unborn, which is why we do the baby bottle blessings, 
to be caring for the elderly, the infirm, those with special needs. Christians should take care of, of the people and the things on this earth. It's our duty. Read Genesis 1. But Paul is challenging us to really not just dismiss this earth, but to consider our thought life about things on earth. That's why he says set your mind, right? So what consumes your thoughts? What do you think about when you daydream? If you're like me, you think about your job. Think about your family. Think about your hobbies. If you're a student, you think about your studies. Maybe. <laughs> you should think about your studies if you're a student. How about that? You think about uh, your finances, right? You, the list could go on and on. You fill in the blank. You know what you think about. But the things that you think about intentionally are the things that are valuable to you. And Paul is saying, think about Set your mind on the above things, not on the earthly things. Because as Paul says to the Philippians, if you're a Christian, your citizenship is in heaven. It's not on earth. So you should be thinking about your earthly things from that heavenly perspective. Let me give you a real example that I'm feeling right now. Very soon, my address is going to change from Lansing to Hillsdale. Very soon. But my citizenship won't change. Because I'm not a citizen of Lansing or Hillsdale or anywhere else that I've lived. Not ultimately. My citizenship is in heaven. My citizenship is heaven. And the same thing is true for you if you're a Christian. Again, if you're a Christian. But if you're a Christian living in greater Lansing, whether you've lived here your whole life, or you're a transplant, or you're a college student, or you're just passing through, your, your residency, your current address might be here. But if you're a Christian, your citizenship is in heaven. And you, you should be thinking about life from that perspective, not from this earthly perspective. That's why Jesus said, store up treasures not on earth, but in heaven. So how do we set our minds on these earthly, on these heavenly things, these above things, instead of these earthly things. Well, I think the best way to do it is flee from earthly lies and to set our hearts, our minds, I should say, on biblical truth. The Colossians were at risk of believing the lies of false teachers in their midst. Those false teachers were teaching them legalistic rules. They were really consumed with spiritual experiences and angelic visions, and they had lost sight of the, the priority, the preeminence of Jesus. I don't know if those are the things that you struggle with believing. Those are lies that are kind of in the forefront of your mind, but there are all sorts of earthly lies that are drawing you in. The worldview of secular humanism, this idea that uh, human beings are good, and that we can, in and of ourselves, make this world a better place without God's supernatural help, it's a lie. Flee from it. Materialism, that subtle but wicked idea that more stuff or money is going to make you happier. Flee from it. World religions that say you can earn your salvation by doing good deeds and somehow earn favor with God. Flee from those ideas. 
Instead, meditate on the biblical truth that according to Scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And meditate, meditate on those biblical truths. I guess my time's up. <laughs> Get me out of here. Time to move to Hillsdale. Heard from God, and that's not how it happens. This is what we need. We need to be Bible-saturated people. We need to be people who really and truly know God's Word and know Jesus' voice. Let me encourage you, on the last day that I have the opportunity to address you as a whole congregation, a congregation whom I love, I would encourage you to permanently give up the book Jesus Calling and instead, read your Bible thoroughly and cover to cover so you might know Jesus' unmistakable voice because it's here that he's calling to you in all of his glory, in all of his grace. But let's be people who meditate on the Bible, who let it shape how we think from a heavenly perspective. Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. You can think about those Jesus-honoring virtues by soaking up this word. Flee from the lies and meditate on truth. So let's set our hearts. Let's set our minds on things above, not on earth. Let's set them on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we praise you this morning that you've given us a fresh glimpse of your resurrected Son, Jesus. May we seek to know him and make him known as we set our hearts and minds on things above. We pray in his name. Amen.